0: by letting the attention rest in the breath one after another after another. Letting the attention rest with one simple and neutral thing brings the mind to a state of steadiness and calmness out of which the clarity of wisdom is likely to arise just by sitting and bringing the attention to the breath which comes and goes all by itself. To notice qualities about the coming and going of the breath This was a long breath. This was a short breath. That was a really pleasant, relaxing breath. That was a loud sound. Okay, now here's the next breath. This is a breath. This is very pleasant. This is very pleasant. Actually, it's not so pleasant. It's a little cold. But maybe I'll warm up after a while. I'll just bring my attention back to the breath. And there's a breath. And there's a breath. The practice of noting... Not necessarily in words, but actually in words, if that works for you. It's very helpful for me. This is a practice of wise mindfulness. And the truth is that wise mindfulness, practiced moment to moment, sequential moments of knowing what's happening, really augment concentration. The third wise effort, the moment in which you discover that you've been asleep or that you've been thinking about tomorrow You've been worried, storming on the way home, whether you locked your door or turned out the lights or whatever it is that comes up in your mind, if the email you're expecting is going to come. When you discover that your mind has been someplace else, the attention has been someplace else for a while, there's a moment in which the mind becomes aware, ah, I was someplace else. In that moment, which is a free moment, which is really a moment of mindfulness, your attention is free to put it any place you want. Say, whoa. I was somewhere else. Now I'm here. My breath is coming in and my breath is coming out. It was such a relief for me to realize that there was actually nothing lost by that moment of discovering that I'd been asleep or in dreaming in some other part of my life. That actually the awareness of that moment of dreaminess and the attention to notice, oh, here I am in this moment, was actually the heart of practice. That that practice of returning to presence is really what we really want to cultivate in our lives. We don't go around monitoring our breaths all day long or reciting blessings of well-being all day long. But be present is what we'd like to be. And discovering, and I'll really talk about that as my talk tonight, what happens when the mind isn't present and where it goes when it gets lost. And having the ability to notice, oh, I'm not really here, and be back is really the heart of the practice. So I'll invite you, if you want to spend the first uh, thing down, just to listen to sounds around you. I've discovered that if I listen, not for any particular sound, but just waking up ear consciousness, it wakes up the whole body awareness, and my whole body comes into focus more clearly. Kind of like a Polaroid photo that you pull out and let's stand in the light for a while. And that just by itself, my attention will settle on the sensations of my body. And if I sit still, it will settle most particularly in the sensations that are the changing parts of the body. The expanding and contraction of the chest, the rising and falling of the belly, the sense of movement around the nostrils, the rising and falling of the shoulders, Whatever for you are the feelings and the movements that signify breath is coming in and breath is going out. And we'll sit for probably maybe almost a half hour. I thought what I mostly wanted to talk about tonight was courage. When I'm going to go teach somewhere, I think all that day and sometimes for days leading up to it, about what I'll teach, what I feel, what's come up for me. And um, I noticed today, particularly, I had the idea about courage, because at a few points during the day, I'd meet somebody, and uh, in some circumstance, I was in the post office and commenting about the fact that there was nobody in the post office. And I live over in Marin, so there's a post office over in Marin, and uh, the... the postal worker said to me, well, it's because of the heavy weather that no one's going out. And uh, I said, uh, uh, well, I can understand that. I said, but I'm going to Berkeley tonight. He said, oh, he said, uh, (laughs) it's really heavy weather. Are you sure you want to do that? And uh, I said, well, really, I have to go to Berkeley because I'm giving a talk there. So he said, well, I guess you have to go. He said, but be very careful. And I was touched by it, you know, because it was... And I thought that really, in some ways, it encapsulates uh, what I really have come to think is the essential core of the human potential, that we care about each other, that we have concern for each other, even people that we don't know. You know, take take good care of yourself. Be, Be really careful as you go. And I thought about the, you know, the the ordinary stuff of life, be careful. This is just coming over to Berkeley in the rain, be careful. There are so many things to be careful about. I thought about how courageous it is for people to go about their lives in weather outside and in storms inside and continue. And these are difficult times to live in, you know. You think about we're living in a in a in a real storm, so to speak, in a rainstorm. But the whole of this earth is really taken up with a storm of difficulties here and there and war in more places than it's easy to think about and complications for the planet itself. It's courageous to be alive these days and to get up in the morning and put on your shoes and socks and go out and do another day and so many people, maybe even people in this room, dealing with some sort of illness in their own body or in bodies of somebody they love. It's tremendously courageous to get up in the morning and do another day, hopefully. Really what I've been thinking about in the last year is what keeps hope or spirit alive. Um, how did this come up in my mind today? Oh, there was a great story. A friend of mine told me this story today. She gave me a a book uh, by Adam Gopnik, uh, who writes for The New Yorker, a really wonderful writer, and pointed me particularly to the chapter, the book called Through the Children's Gate. And uh, it's a a particularly uh, moving story about uh, the author's uh, daughter, Olivia. And uh, I, I read the story together with her, and I said, oh, I'll teach this tonight. Because it has to do with keeping your spirit alive. She, he said that, that when Olivia was three, she uh, announced that she had a playmate uh, that, uh, uh, whose name was Charlie, and he was, four, he was seven, which, uh, according to Gopnik, made him a man of the world for her because she was three. And, uh, and she had whole dialogues that she reported that she had with Charlie, but it was very clear that Charlie was an imaginary person uh, that, that he didn't really exist. He was in her mind. He, she had a playmate. And part of the essay is about how uh, Adam Gopnik and his wife worried about whether their child was lonesome or whether they'd done something wrong, that she had to conjure up a an imaginary playmate. She seemed to have a very complete kind of dialogue going on. And she had a brother and friends and went to school and seemed otherwise like fine. always fine. She would give daily reports on Charlie and what he was doing And uh, at one point, she said, Charlie got married, so I can't marry him now. And uh, she had a name for Charlie's wife. And then at some point later, and this is the whole point of why I'm telling you the story, Olivia announced that Charlie's wife had died. And uh, Martha Gopnik, Olivia's mother, said to her, what did she die of? And Olivia said, she died of bitterosity. (laughs) And I, I, that really is why I told you that whole story, because I really think that the the way to live in a difficult world is to have a mind and a heart of sweetness, which is the opposite of a mind of bitterosity. And that, I don't know literally, but certainly figuratively, we die if we have a mind of bitterosity. One of my teachers, Reb Zalman Shakhtar Shlomi, who probably many of you know, likes to make the analogy. He says, the mind is like tofu. That by itself, it has no taste. And says, it matters what you marinate it in. (laughs) If you marinate it in a bitter-tasting marinade when you cook it, it won't be at all pleasant to eat. But if you marinate it in something sweet, then when you cook it, it will be pleasant to eat. And I think so much about how hard it is to keep the marinade of my mind in a, in a pleasant state. I think, actually, I, I was looking in the book today. But I, every time I'm going to teach, I read the whole book over again that day. And there's a chapter called, um, It's Very Easy to Get Confused. And the next chapter is called, It's Particularly Easy to Get Angry. So, But really what I wanted to make the point about is that there are so many challenges in life, so many things that happen all the time, that irritates everybody. And to be able to notice the mind being filled with irritating dialogue um, that portrays oneself, the narrative that we tell is a woe-is-me narrative, is really, really um, cultivating a mind of bitterosity and how hard it is to keep a mind of sweetness. I've been telling people at... uh, at Spirit Rock for, oh, maybe a year or more, from time to time I say, I think you should turn to the person next to you on a bus or a train or an airplane and, uh, you know, have a conversation. You start a conversation, you say to the person next to you, what are you doing these days to keep your heart alive? So usually people usually people laugh when they say that. But what they're laughing about is not so much the question. But the idea that you might, certainly, in fact, turn to a total stranger and say, what are you doing to keep your heart alive? Somebody said, if I asked that to somebody on a muni bus, they would get up and change their seat. (laughs) But, in fact, everybody who got out of bed and got in the muni bus knows something about keeping their heart alive because everybody's life is beset with challenges, large or small, from the beginning. And in order not to become desperate, dispirited, we all know tricks to keep our heart alive. Often it's uh, thinking of the people that we love or planning something that will be pleasant. Or what are you doing so that you won't lose heart is another way to talk about it. I Years ago, asked a friend of mine who, uh, however much I thought of myself as a political activist, way out activisted me. And I was very proud of her. And often in causes that failed, that were defeated and didn't, where what I thought was the right side and what she thought was the right side didn't prevail. And I remember asking her, what do you do to not lose heart? And she thought about it for a while. And then she said, I talked to my friends. And I really understood that then and now in quite a profound way because it becomes clear to me the more time that passes that a warm connection with someone else, even if it's one person, who feels that I do and hopes what I hope and thinks that what I hope is a possibility is actually a possibility, keeps my own hope alive. I think so much about the way that I am sustained by my ability to connect in this world. My sister-in-law for a while, uh, when she moved to uh, Durham a couple of years ago, was looking around for uh, uh, a cause to volunteer for. She's a she's an investment um, uh, manager. She worked for a, a Morgan Stanley branch there. So her work is finance and numbers. But she was looking for something that would um, give her sustenance in the way of serving the community. So she became a volunteer for the American Heart Association, and she was very excited about it. And she called me to tell me about it, and she said, you know, I'm learning, I'm studying so much, because she said, there are all kinds of things I didn't know. She said, do you have any idea how many people in this country die of heart failure? And, uh, you know, in fact, she meant literally heart failure. But I thought, that's a really important line to think about. How many people die of heart failure because their own heart is not sustained by relationship? Their own heart is not kept warm by their ability to connect with the goodness in the world. Actually, when I read that story about Olivia today... And uh, thank you about the comment about good titles. I thought if I ever write again, and I think I probably have ripped myself out in the way of books, I would write a book called Avoiding Bitterosity. (laughs) Or How to Avoid Bitterosity. That would be a good title. The thing is, not to be naive, the world is very difficult. You know, I'm... I am concerned, I'm sure you are too. There are all kinds of difficult things going on in the world. You know, I think about the world, how it will be in in 20 years or 30 years, when I probably, very likely, will not be here, but my children and my grandchildren, I hope, will be here. I think you worry about that too. And how not to lose heart about that. How to say, well, I somehow feel in myself the impulse to care, and I know that the impulse to care and to take care of, be careful, the postal worker said, that impulse to care I think is the most essentially human thing. I think about us as being uh, different from other kind of animals in the, in, the, in the sense that we have the capacity for empathy. We know how, we intuit how other people feel from knowing how we feel. And through that, We care about what happens to other people. We get interested in stories. We cry in the movies at dramas that are made up stories as if they were real. And when they're real stories, and we read real stories about people that are full of difficulties, we cry about them as well. As if we knew them. Isn't that true? One of my friends called me. This is a few years ago. You probably remember it when uh, there was a mine disaster in West Virginia, Pennsylvania, and there was some days before those miners were rescued. And it was very early in one morning that they were actually rescued and there was CNN on the scene showing pictures of that elevator coming up, bringing people up from this mine. And one of my friends called me, woke me up very early in the morning and said, hurry up, get up, turn on the TV. You really need to see this. And it was the just seeing the coverage of people coming up and being greeted by the people who love them and had been frightened for them. And you looked at it. How many of you saw that? Anybody saw that? Because you cry when you see that and you don't know those people. But you intuit how they feel. That's an extraordinary thing that human beings, most of us, are able to do. So there are difficulties that assail everybody's life that I think confuse us. I know for myself that my own mind and my own heart are predisposed to care not only about myself and my kin but about people I don't know and the whole planet and the future of the world. My mind, I think, is disposed to do that when I am not preoccupied with my own story, when I'm not confused by what's going on. I think that's true for most people. I think when we talk about spiritual practice and about the mind that's full of wisdom, it's that wisdom that knows that there are difficulties in the world and that we can complicate them by not looking at them clearly or we can look at them clearly and respond to them. That there are difficulties in the world and that they're not there by accident when I look at the, the complications in the world and the wars and the planets and the inequalities and the ways in which people don't use each other and the planet well, I think to myself, this didn't become like this by accident. You know, It's not by something apart from human action. I think the biggest piece of wisdom for me is recognizing the truth of karma, that things happen because other people things happened. And when I think that this world is in the difficulty it's in because of things people did, I'm very inspired that it can get out of the difficulty that it's in by things people could do. And I'm remembering in that moment that the answer to the world's difficulties, I mean all, all the things that we do to help in the material and the substantive ways that we do, but in the long run, if there is enough time for a long run, The way that the planet will be sustained is when people realize that we feel better when we take care of each other. We'll have a better world when we take care of each other. That we can convert people to kindness rather than win and triumph. That nobody ever in the end comes out where they fight over something. But when they seduce each other into kindness... Really what I've been thinking about in these last few years is what is it that we can really trust? What can I really trust? And what I think I really trust is that truth about myself and about human beings that we have that capacity. When I am frightened about what's going on in the world and about to be seduced into despair, I think about the fact that when my mind is clear, I care about what happens. I want things to be different. And I suddenly, in that moment of caring, have the energy to do something to make a difference. And then I remember that everyone, pretty much everyone, I think, has that capacity. I'd say, I suppose, that what I trust in is that uh, the fundamental nature of the human mind as being benevolent and wanting to connect in warm, caring relationship. I'll tell you the story that started me writing that book because it's really about that. I don't have to read it to you because I wrote it. I know it. Um, My friend Martha called me. I was sitting at my computer writing. Actually, the book begins this way. I can probably do it by heart. I was sitting at the computer, my computer writing when my friend Martha called to tell me that her brother Jack's condition had suddenly taken a turn for the much worse. I felt badly for her and for Jack, a man that I knew a little bit, not so much, but I knew about him and about his children and his grandchildren. I knew his sister Martha very well. She was a good friend of mine. I knew his mother, his aged mother, who lived with Martha. And I knew that Jack had been sick. So I talked to Martha for a while on the phone and um, said what I hoped were consoling words. And then when I hung up the phone, I turned back to the computer and I realized I was eager to get back to writing because I'd had, just before the phone had rung, what I had thought was a really good thought. And I went back to write and I realized I'd forgotten what thought I'd had. And I heard my mind make the thought, how inconvenient of Jack to get sick just (laughs) today. And honestly, I could feel my heart wince about that. So I turned off the computer and I lit a candle and I sat in my rocking chair and I looked out the window and I thought, Prayers, really, for Jack and for Martha and for her mother. May your suffering be ease. May you be peaceful. Then I thought about the other people that I knew in the world who were in special trouble at that time. And I said prayers for them as well. Sometimes, you know, I'm pretty sure all of you are familiar with the Metta Resolves. Sometimes I actually say them exactly in the formal way. May you be safe, may you be happy, may you be strong, may you be healthy, may you live with ease. Sometimes when I really know and um, the person that I'm saying them for, I say what I might say to them in real life. May these days not be difficult for you. May you be eased in your pain. Because it's, it's as if I'm talking to that person. And then I thought about my family, who were at that time all well, and I wished that they would stay well. And I made resolves, wishes for their well-being. It was fall of the year. I remember that the flowers on the deck, as I looked out, were fading. They were the last of the flowers. And I realized how short life is and how fragile, really, over before you know, like with season's flowers. And I realized how content I was. I thought to myself, I should get back now to the writing. But I didn't feel any impulse at all to get back to the writing. And I realized as I thought about it that what I am happiest at is feeling myself connected to someone else in some permutation of warm connection, in friendship, in consolation, in appreciation. Those are actually really the three permutations of an equanimous heart. Those are the three ways in which the heart that's balanced and clear manifests itself. And I realize that when my heart is balanced and clear, it manifests itself that way. I think everybody else's does too. When I get confused, which is often, I forget. And I actually thought when I wrote this book, I'm not writing this book about staying unconfused because I don't think that's possible. I really am writing the book about becoming clear again after having become confused because it's very easy to become confused you know uh, I wrote a sentence down today this was this afternoon it was a test for myself I was thinking about how to tell you about this because when you've written a book it's a a great part of the fun is doing an evening like this where I'm not rushed I can run over 15 seconds I can start early or end later or take questions but when you're interviewed on the radio which happens, a lot, I love it. You get anywhere up to an hour. Tomorrow, if you listen to Chris Welch at noon, you'll hear me and Chris talking on KPFA for an hour. You have an hour, you can expand on everything in the world. Sometimes you have a half hour. Sometimes you have 15 minutes. Sometimes you get two to three minutes in a news program. And so someone, with the, the interviewer will say, ah, what's your book about? And you have two to three minutes to tell the whole story of what is the point of your book so, do you remember that, uh, uh, program years ago, Name That Tune? I can name that tune in three notes. I can name it in four notes, one note. So, I thought to myself, I will see in how many seconds I can say what's in this book. So, I wrote it down because I wrote it down because I could hear it in my mind, but then I wrote it down and then I timed it on my watch. So, it should take 45 seconds to say. Someone says, What's, <clears throat> what did the Buddha teach that's it what What did the Buddha teach, as you have portrayed it in this book? It, I would say it's true for me. you can time on your watch. It's true for me, and I'm sure for mostly anyone, that when my mind is relaxed and clear, my natural good heart manifests itself as friendship, as compassion, as appreciation, and that I am always the principal beneficiary of these sweet mind states. The challenge is that it's so easy for my mind to become tense and confused and disconnect me from other people from myself and from the world. The Buddha taught wise effort, wise concentration and wise mindfulness as tools for returning the mind to clarity and the heart to benevolence each time confusion overwhelms it into suffering. 45 seconds, right? <laughs> that's the whole, inte- that not only is that the whole book, but that's the whole of the dharma. That's exactly true. That's the whole of the dharma. That the mind becomes confused. It's incredibly easy to become confused. I will tell you, this, this is one of the stories, a short little story, it comes in my mind right now, I'll tell it to you, then I'm going to talk about those three wises. I'm to tell you this story, because one of my favorite stories of the past couple of years, because it is so typical, any one of us could do a variation of this story. I was on a, a, a airport security line, going along, pulling my carry-on with me, traveling alone, going, going, coming home from Denver, I think, and you know, wending my way up to the security <coughs> inspection place. And you hear the people's conversations in front of you and behind you, especially if you yourself are not talking. And all of a sudden, I become privy to the conversation of two people right behind me. And the conversation goes like this. Person one says, it's your fault. (laughs) Person two says, what do you mean it's my fault? It's not my fault. Yes, it is. It's your fault. It's your fault. We're late. Prove it to me that it's my fault. I don't have to prove it to you. It's just your fault. It's going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. (laughs) So I, uh, they sound like young people. I turn around, I'm pre- pretending to look behind them, but I'm actually looking at them because they sounded like young people. Two young people dressed in, uh, uh, Nike running suits and carrying either tennis rackets, something or other that identified that they were going on a holiday. And, uh, there are a couple going on a holiday. And I had this momentary thought, an urge, they're going to turn around and say, listen to me. (laughs) It doesn't matter whose fault it
1: is.
0: (laughs) If you're late and you miss the plane, there'll be another plane afterwards. And you don't know anyway if this plane that you're hoping to get on is going to be the one that gets there safely or the one that crashes and the one that goes afterwards is the one that gets there safely. You don't know anything about anything, so. But I didn't say anything. <laughs> I thought I could get away with it, but I didn't say anything, and I push my stuff through the uh, the security inspection, and you have to unzip everything and uh, uh, open the computer and take off all your clothes and your shoes. <laughs> you get and you go through the you go through the sensor and on the other side. You have to hurry up because you have to zip up the bag and zip up the computer and get the shoes on, standing on one foot, the other foot, and your jacket back on. And in front of me, there was another couple coming through just in front of me. And in the middle of also they getting dressed, they stop and they turn and they give each other like a hug, just like this. It was like a gesture of affection. It wasn't a big scene, but it was anyway a gesture of affection. And I, I imagine they, they, they were congratulating each other about having made it through the security.
1: <laughs>
0: but I had a momentary thought then that I was going to turn around again and call the attention of the people behind me to the people in front of me and say, listen, there are two ways to do a challenging situation. Either you can have a fight about it or you can kiss about it, and kissing is better. So it's a great story. I love that story. I love that story because it is a it, it's a uh, what do you call it a paradigmatic story. You could take that story and plug in any name, any place, and any situation into it. Uh, each of us could think of a time when we had a fight over whose fault it is, and it never matters whose fault it is. What is is, and it isn't anybody's fault. It's it, it the whole thing is a conspiracy. It goes back to Adam and Eve. And when you're going to think about (laughs) karma, it is never anybody's fault. It's a great coming together of the karma of the moment. And there is never anyone to be blamed for anything. That's a whole big story. Take an hour to do that, at least. But it's true. So, But I have a friend who says that those three words, it's your fault, have caused more trouble in the history of the world than any other three words. And I think that's probably true. But... When I tell that story to people, I also say to them, I don't want to suggest that that could happen only to these young people who are naive and unsophisticated and they don't have the dharma and that it would never happen to me because it happens to me now if I'm startled and I'm uh, confused about something happening not the way I wanted it to happen because it, for whatever reason. I think it's the nature of minds to fall into confusion. And I think that the insight of the Buddha in the Eightfold Path, and in the, particularly in the three middle parts of the path, in the mind training parts of the path, are the ways to bring the mind back out of confusion into a place of balance where it sees clearly. I see that you like that story, so I'll tell you the other story that goes right after it. Then, I'll, then I'm, we're going to practice a little wise mindfulness. I love this story anyway, because it's a story I tell right when I say, you know, I'm not that wise either. I, you know, I would make a mistake if I got upset. And the mistake I tell is that um, some of you know that I live part of the year in France for the last couple of years. My husband and I have a very small house right on the Spanish border and uh, it's quite teeny and we're very fortunate to have bought it and uh, we furnished it in uh, not very much furniture because it's very small but with antiques from an antique store in the small town near where we live and I don't know anything about antiques I've never had an antique but it looks like what I should put in it because the whole thing looks like a dollhouse and uh, we bought a bed for it And uh, we bought a bed and a secretary and one other thing. And then we came back to the United States and we were assured that um, it would all be delivered by the time we returned. And it was all delivered. What also came with it was a 400 euro bill in excess of what we had already paid for apparently the custom-made mattress for that bed that we bought. So I called the Auntie Care And I protested the bill, and she said, alas, uh, the uh, fact that the bed is narrower than a regular uh, double bed. In 1840, they had smaller bodies and narrower beds. (laughs) But it's fine, we're small people, but but they they had to have a small mattress made for it, and that's really why, alas, it costs more. But now I was on my way to the um, uh, antique store to protest in person, because I was goaded on, urged on by my husband who was mad and who doesn't speak French. <laughs> this is an awkward situation for me because I am by nature conflict avoidant. I don't like offending anybody. So I'm going because I, he is upset and I don't want him to be upset. On the other hand, I do not want to upset the auntie care. How many people can empathize with that the real <laughs> conflict avoidant stance? And all the way there, he's uh, trying to whip up my enthusiasm for the discussion. <laughs> Tell her that we already paid, that it was part of the deal, that it was supposed to be all included, that the check covered it all, that if it turned out that the mattress wasn't readily available, it's her fault, she's the uh, expert, and she should have known it, and therefore she should make up a difference. I said, uh, she is a small, she's an 85-year-old small-town auntie care. She's not Macy's. You can't go back and change things. He said, nevertheless, you should get her to give you, at least, if she doesn't give us the money back, she should give you one of those bedside tables, two of them that you were looking at when we bought the bed. We go, I say in my best, most polite French, I explain our situation and how we really enjoyed all our previous dealings with her and how satisfied we were with everything. But unfortunately, because of the surprising event of the 400 euro overcharge, we were left with some uh, unhappy, uh, sad, bad uh, feelings. (laughs) uh, Mauvaise émotion. And uh, Madame the Antiquaire looked suddenly very concerned. And she leaned forward and she put her arm on me and she said, oh, Madame... Mauvaise emotions are very bad for you. You should put them down. <laughs> she said, let them go.
1: <laughs>
0: it, it is a good said. They're in the past.
1: <laughs>
0: and I mean, this is great. I mean, I also, I, I was sitting there listening. And I was actually laughing inside because I thought, it actually picked up my spirits. It's like she reminded me of what I know. Her final line was the best. She said, these things happen. (laughs) Of course they do. Everything happens. Everything happens. You didn't plan it this way, but they happen. And to compound the dismay of the 400 euros with mauvaise emotion, doesn't make any sense at all. So we leave the, uh, in the meantime, uh, uh, clearly, I, as she's talking, I realize, first of all, that I'm not going to get any end tables. <laughs> and I realized she was right, and it was such a relief, because then all my, all my distress fell away. We left, I remember we went out of the store, and Seymour said to me, uh, what did uh, she say? <laughs> <laughs> I said, she said, what she said more or less was, that's life. <laughs> but that is life. Things happen, and you deal with them. And, you know, a, a, an overcharge on a mattress, especially if you can afford to pay for it, isn't the worst thing. There are many worse things that happen. But the mind gets aggravated. It's not fair. It's not fair. Those are the three words. How to keep the mind from becoming confused so that it remembers what it knows. These things happen. Hanging on to, to, insisting that things be other than what they are is the cause of suffering. That's the second noble truth. It's the center of what the Buddha taught. Things happen just because they do. Because other things have happened. It's the karma of existence. There are causes and effects. Things happen. My friend Martha, who herself died, in fact, after her brother Jack did, Died of pancreas cancer. And uh, one time when we were talking about how, she said, I, I don't think I'm being a very good Buddhist about um, this illness. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, I'm not opening to it with acceptance. I said, sweetheart, you have a terrible illness. You know, you're not supposed to. She said, I don't like it at all. I said, you're not supposed to like it. I said, I think you're not supposed to be angry at it. She said, well, truth to tell, I'm sometimes angry at it. So I said, well, then what I think is that you're not supposed to be angry at yourself for being angry at it. And she said, you know what's true? She said, sometimes when I think to myself, why me? And I think to myself, why me? She said, I suffer a lot. She said, and if I think about it for a while, and I realize, why not me? Then I feel better. Wasn't any more pleased about having a disease that was going to take her life in the end. But the extra anguish of struggling with something about which you have no control. Why not me? These things happen. Everything happens. Terrible diseases happen. Tsunamis happen. One of my cousins left the beach at Phuket four hours before that wave came in. It could have been otherwise. Why this way and not that way? Things happen. Things happen all the time. That we come home at the end of the day is a miracle and a mystery and a source of great rejoicing, really. We cross so many streets in the day. So many things could happen. So many things can happen inside, outside. That we have a mind clear and a body whole enough to connect once again in kindness with somebody seems to me to be the greatest of blessings. So, in the time left, I just want to remind us of the three uh, uh, mind-organizing, reorganizing techniques that the Buddha taught. I'm sure you're familiar with the Eightfold Path. Are you familiar with the Eightfold Path? Enough people... Who knows the eightfold path? Who doesn't know the eightfold path? Okay. (laughs) The Buddha, when he had his own enlightenment experience, sometime shortly thereafter, went out and began to teach what he had understood as the cause and the end of suffering, and he expounded that as the Four Noble Truths. It is his first teaching sermon, it's called the Sermon of Setting into Motion, the Turning of the Wheel, and it's the beginning of the dharma. The first noble truth is that life is inevitably challenging for everyone, and ultimately we will lose everything that's dear to us if, unless we are lost to it first, because things change all the time. It's not a, a pessimistic uh, religion, it's a realistic religion. The second noble truth is that not the cause of suffering, but suffering is the inability of the mind to accommodate the truth of the moment, to insist that it be otherwise. It's like this. It's like discovering that the world is a tremendously amazing drama unfolding, but it's not just my drama. It's six billion dramas, six billion human dramas, not to speak of everybody else's, every being's, else's drama, but six human being dramas, all like on a giant television, all unfolding. And I am an actor in the drama, but I am not the director of it. And realizing that I'm not in charge. Things happen for reasons. It's a lawful unfolding. But I'm not in charge of it, which is in some ways a great relief. That's the second noble truth, that the the mind in contention with what's the truth is the mind that suffers. That peace is possible is the third noble truth. That we don't have to suffer, that we can, regardless of the circumstances, have a mind that's relaxed and clear. I'm going to call that happy because it manifests itself in kindness. But it doesn't always mean that it's pleased with the situation. We have English is a difficult language to translate the Dharma sentence because we think about normally we think about happy as pleased. It definitely doesn't mean pleased. It could mean pleased. But sometimes there are certain circumstances that are definitely not pleasant. But for the mind to be able to say, this is what's happening. This isn't what I wish was happening. I wish it were otherwise. But it's like this. So let's hold hands. I love you a lot. It's been extraordinary to be in a life with you. Whatever. To connect with compassion with ourselves, with the moment, with the situation. It's a possibility for the mind to grok the moment to know it in a way that doesn't fight with it. And the fourth noble truth of which these three parts are the middle part are the eightfold training path that the Buddha laid out for his disciples as a way of developing a mind that was able to keep itself clear or return itself to clarity. And the three middle parts, the first three parts are morality trainings of how to... uh, how to act in a way that didn't cause suffering in yourself and other people, how to speak in a way that didn't cause suffering yourself and other people, how to make a living, have a livelihood in a way that doesn't cause suffering. The last two parts are about diligence in developing knowledge and aspiration to continue to develop knowledge. So they're more the studying parts and these are more the social parts. The middle three parts of the path literally I think the heart of the path because they're what change your hearts and figuratively because they're in the middle of the path are wise effort, wise mindfulness and wise concentration. Wise effort is really, uh, is quite clearly uh, defined by the Buddha as the effort to be in touch moment to moment with the climate of the mind. What's going on in my mind? Which would be the same as saying what's going on in my heart. Is this a, a bitter moment? Am I rehearsing some revenge scenario? Sometimes I'm riding along in my car. My car is one of the best places to catch my mind. Riding along in a car. Maybe I was at a meeting at Spirit Rock. Maybe the meeting didn't go exactly as I said. Maybe that person's rebuttal to what I had suggested hurt my feelings. And I'm riding along and thinking, she shouldn't have said that. That wasn't a nice way to say that. Tomorrow or the next time I see that person at a meeting, I'm not going to be so nice to her. And then, you know, I won't be outright not nice, but I won't be so friendly. And maybe she'll wonder about why I'm not so friendly. And while I'm hatching the revenge thought, if I'm paying attention, I notice that my body has become, I'm clenching the steering wheel, my mind is tense, and that the world has disappeared. I'm actually, you know... They say, don't operate a heavy machinery when your mind is occupied, when your mind is not clear. I'm operating heavy machinery. My mind is in spirit rock misbehaving itself, you know, and I'm here on the island. And you catch yourself, and this is what the Buddha would have said, if you find that your mind is filled with unwholesome thoughts, unwholesome feelings, you put them out of your mind. And if you look at your mind and you realize, oh, my mind does not have any unwholesome thoughts in it, good, let me keep them out. And what's more, if I were to discover that I was suddenly thinking as I went by, as I go by some young children going to school and they look so cute in their backpacks and they're being so careful to hold hands and help each other across the street, and my mind is suddenly filled with the wholesome thought of may they be well, may they be happy. May they thrive. May they get there safely. And I have the pleasure of that thought. And I can say to myself, oh, that was a wholesome thought. It's lovely to have wholesome thoughts in the mind. May I cultivate some more wholesome thoughts? Okay. Now I'll look at these people in the cars around me, one person in each car. Why
1: does that mean one
0: person in each car? Don't they know that there isn't enough fuel? I am one person in my car, right? (laughs) But I'm having bad thoughts on other people in the other car. And you catch yourself doing that. You say, wait a minute. How do I know where they're going? Maybe it's more important than where I'm going. Maybe their mother is dying. Maybe their brother is having an 80th birthday party. I have no idea whether their errand is more or less important than mine, and they have more or less right to be in their car. May they be protected. May they be happy. May they be peaceful. It's better for me to have that. I don't know if it makes them happy or peaceful. Sometimes people say, does does the meta really work? And they mean, does it change that other person? Does it make them safe or peaceful? I don't know. But it makes me safer, because I am more peaceful. That's really the wise effort. I actually think it's the unsung hero, of uh, undersung hero of the Eightfold Path, because it's, uh, it's very clear. It doesn't say wait for wisdom to repurify your heart. It just says, just go for it. Put out those bad thoughts from your mind and keep these good thoughts in your mind. Wise concentration, I'm going to skip over the wise mindfulness and do it last. Wise concentration is really to ste- the steadying of the mind. That's why we ta- I talked about a little bit before we start about staying with a neutral object so the mind calms itself down so it can assess a situation clearly. There's a Zen story that I had a lot of trouble with for years. Zen stories are often inscrutable, but uh, or to me they are for a while, but... It's a story about a, a Zen master in a, uh, an abbot centuries ago in Japan at the time that samurai bands were warring up and down uh, Japan and that uh, the monks in a certain monastery got the word that a very ferocious monk uh, was on his way through the countryside in their direction and Uh, known for his uh, savage brutality and all the villagers fled and all the monks fled and the abbot did not flee and the story goes that the chief warrior comes into the shrine room where the abbot is sitting and brandishes his sword and says, don't you know that I am the kind of man that can run you through with my sword without batting an eye? And the Zen master says back, and I, sir, am the sort of man that can be run through with a sword, without batting an eye. And the story goes on to say that the warrior is converted to being a disciple of the Zen master and converted to a mind of peace. And I didn't like that story for a long time for two reasons. One is I didn't think I could ever get to have that amount of steadiness. And also because for a long time I thought that it sounded like it was all the same to that Zen master, whether he lived or died. And it's not all the same to me, if I live or die. I rather live. But much more recently, and curiously, very much maybe brought into stark relief by the events of September 11th, six years ago. You remember when there are recorded... um, messages that people left on, on phones when their planes were coming down where they said, um, my plane is going to crash and uh, I love you and take good care of yourself and take care of the children. Nobody said a recrimination in their message. Nobody said other than take care of you. I love you. Watch the children for me. I think when the mind is clear and it knows a certain outcome is going to happen, it can be steady. And it doesn't mean that you wouldn't rather live than die. It means that you can be in touch with what's important. In the Zen master story, you don't know that he wouldn't rather live than die. You just know that when faced with the inevitable, he can do it with poise without making the situation worse. I've been very impressed with... uh, The clarity of people, I've I've known a number of people. My friend Martha died. My friend Tamara died three weeks ago. I've been very impressed with people who were able to die with a degree of clarity that made their passing easier for them and for the people around them. I thought to myself about the Zen master, that I'd like someone to rewrite the story and not make it a matter of life and death. It should be a matter that maybe his, his monks all left and said they didn't want to go study with another teacher. And uh, maybe he got arthritis in his knees and couldn't sit anymore. And then it should be a story about when it isn't life or death, if the mind stays so clear. I'd like to think that he could have stayed there also without batting an eye. But concentration is really what steadies the mind. And I saved right mindfulness for the last because I did want to read you a piece from the book and it's a, it's a little because it's about James and me and I thought it'd be a sweet thing to read to James's group with James's wife here um, and it's about mindfulness as a steadier of the mind and a clearer of the mind and really the place where wisdom can emerge even in difficult situations. I could tell you the story, but I'll read it. Because then I'll tell you it exactly the way I'd like to. In 1986, it was 86, in 1986, in the early afternoon of the midpoint day of a two-week mindfulness retreat on the south coast of the Big Island of Hawaii, The bell to end the meditation period rang only 10 minutes after the session had begun. The retreat manager announced that she'd been notified by the Civil Defense Office in Hilo that an earthquake off the coast of Japan had caused a tidal wave. The wave was crossing the ocean in our direction and was projected to arrive in three hours. We have 70 people here, she said, and only one car. Since there are no available buses to send from Hilo and we can't leave, the civil defense told us to take high ground and organize our supplies in case we get stranded. We were living in a two-story, bungalow, in two-story bungalows on a beach ringed by thicket jungle. The best we could do to take high ground was go upstairs. We collected matches, boxes of crackers and crates of fruit, mosquito repellent and flashlights and brought them to the room we were using as our communal meditation space, the second floor of the largest bungalow. We filled the bathtubs with fresh water lest the water pipes burst. When we had finished preparing, we took our seats around the room. Most of us facing our teacher were also facing a wall-to-wall window that looked out across the sea to the flat horizon. The teacher, Joseph Goldstein, told the story of a Zen master of long ago who asked, what would you do if the waters of the north and the south and the east and the west all rose around you? The Zen master, Joseph continued, was reported to have said, I would just sit. Then Joseph said, "Let's sit." I closed my eyes and then opened them again checking the horizon. I felt my heart pounding. I wondered, I wonder how I'd feel if I were in that situation today with the images of the recent devastating tsunami in the Indian Ocean in my mind. I remember that at the time imagining what a wall of water, imagining what a wall of water would look like. I was terrified. I closed my eyes and noticed that the room felt unusually quiet. I took a breath and felt it enough to have it catch my attention. I suppose out of habit I began to name my experience to myself. Breath in, breath out, breath in, breath out. It's very quiet. My hands are cold. My heart is pounding. I'm trembling. I heard my mind saying, I want to drown. And also, take a breath, Sylvia. Now take another one. I noticed my mind quieting down as I named breaths in, out, in, out. I remember feeling surprised to find that my hands felt warmer and my heart had stopped pounding. Maybe the tidal wave will happen, I thought. Maybe not. I don't know. Realizing that I didn't know provided a moment of relief. I opened my eyes. It was windy outside. And I could see the palms swaying. I noticed that one man was watching the sea with binoculars and I recall feeling touched by that, imagining him thinking that his checking close-up could make a difference. My good friend James was sitting next to me. I thought about James's pregnant wife, Jane, at home in Berkeley and I suddenly wanted very much for us all to survive so that James could be home when his child was born. James's hands were folded in his lap, as were mine. I reached over and tapped his knee and held out my hand. He reached for it, and we both closed our eyes and sat for a long while holding hands. I noticed my friend Len, an executive with KCBS in San Francisco, sitting across the room, and I thought, if we survive, Len should be the first one to use the phone. He could could let the radio station know that we're all okay, and then KCBS could broadcast that news across the country to reassure all the relatives who would be worrying about us. The tidal wave never arrived. It passed south of Hawaii. It's more than 20 years now since that day and I find that when I remember the event or I tell it as a story, the drama of it, can you imagine, is not what I think about. After all, we did survive. What continues to inspire me, as I recall or recount that day, is how my experience changed when I was able to shift my attention from personal fear to our communal lot. We were all threatened. We all wanted to live. We all had family or friends who loved us. The outcome of our situation was completely out of our control. And I cared. Of course I cared about myself. And I thought about my family and hoped that they would not lose me. But I realized that I felt better as if a burden had shifted when I thought about other people's families too. Perhaps that's the clue about happiness inherent in caring connections. The frightened I who struggles is replaced by the we who do this difficult life together, looking after one another, holding hands. So I'd like to suggest as we uh, have a minute or two of meta reflections that uh, you might like to hold hands with the people sitting alongside of you if it's convenient to do that. I'll hold my own because it's here. (laughs) We'll make Buddhist history. We'll hold hands in the shrine room. So thinking about James in New York and everyone else that we love and care about, our kin, our friends, and everyone else that we don't know about. Six billion other people doing this life together with us. Our contemporaries at this point in history. All of them wanting, as we do, to feel safe, to feel happy, to feel physically well in their bodies, Imagine a world where we shared food and resources and medicines so that the world could be as well as it could be. Our lives are temporal, but for many people they could be healthier and more comfortable. Imagine if the whole world held hands across all the boundaries and we became kin to each other. May all beings everywhere become safe. May they feel content. May their bodies be as well as possible. May their lives unfold with ease. May the merit of our practice together, of our being together and sitting together and learning together with intention to clarify the mind and heart so that our intrinsic benevolent nature can shine through for our benefit and the benefit of all beings. May that merit be offered freely for the benefit of all beings everywhere. May all beings everywhere be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. Thank you very much for coming tonight. Take good care of yourself. It was a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and
1: Dharma Seed, please visit org slash donate.